The creature struck itself on the chest and made a noise. Ransom did not at first realize what it meant. Then he saw that it was trying to teach him its name, presumably the name of the species. Hross, it said. Hross, and flapped itself. Hross, repeated Ransom, and pointed at it, then man, and struck his own chest. Hma, hma, man, imitated the Hross. It picked up a handful of earth, where earth appeared between weed and water at the bank of the lake. Handra, it said. Ransom repeated the word. Then an idea occurred to him. Malakandra, he said in an inquiring voice. The Hross rolled its eyes and waved its arms, obviously in an effort to indicate the whole landscape. Ransom was getting on well. Handra was earth the element. Malakandra, the earth or planet as a whole. Soon he would find out what Malak meant. In the meantime, H disappears after C, he noted, and made his first step in Malakandrian phonetics. The Hross was now trying to teach him the meaning of Handramit. He recognized the root Handra again and noted they have suffixes as well as prefixes. But this time he could make nothing of the Hross's gestures and remained ignorant what a Handramit might be. He took the initiative by opening his mouth, pointing to it, and going through the pantomime of eating. The Malachandrian word for food, or eat, which he got in return, proved to contain consonants unreproducible by a human mouth, and Ransom, continuing the pantomime, tried to explain that his interest was practical as well as philological. The Hross understood him, though he took some time to understand from his gestures that it was inviting him to follow it. In the end, he did so. It took him only as far as where it had got the shell, and here, to his not very reasonable astonishment, Ransom found that a kind of boat was moored. Manlike, when he saw the artifact, he felt more certain of the Hross's rationality. He even valued the creature the more, because the boat, allowing for the usual Malachandrian height and flimsiness, was really very like an earthly boat. Only later did he set himself the question, what else could a boat be like? The Hross produced an oval platter of some tough, slightly flexible material, covered it with strips of spongy, orange-colored substance, and gave it to Ransom. He cut a convenient length off with his knife and began to eat, doubtfully at first, and then ravenously. It had a bean-like taste, but sweeter, good enough for a starving man. Then as his hunger ebbed, the sense of his situation returned with dismaying force. The huge seal-like creature seated beside him became unbearably ominous. It seemed friendly, but it was very big, very black, and he knew nothing at all about it. What were its relations to the Sorns? And was it really as rational as it appeared? It was only many days later that Ransom discovered how to deal with these sudden losses of confidence. They arose when the rationality of the cross tempted you to think of it as a man. Then it became abominable, a man seven feet high with a snaky body covered face and all with thick black animal hair and whiskered like a cat. But starting from the other end, you had an animal with everything an animal ought to have. Glossy coat liquid eye, sweet breath, and whitest teeth, and added to all these, as though paradise had never been lost and earliest dreams were true, the charm of speech and reason. Nothing could be more disgusting than the one impression, nothing more delightful than the other. It all depended on the point of view. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process 
of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. All right, welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin. My H disappears after my C, and some have described me as manlike. With me to discuss Out of the Silent Planet, I have Sophie Burkhart. Sophie is currently a master student at Regent College, which allows her to spend pretty much all her time musing over the fascinating intersection of stories and theology. When she's not reading books or writing papers, she's attempting to spot all the incredible and so far highly elusive marine animals around Vancouver. Sophie, so good to have you back. How are you doing? I am doing great. Glad to be here. Working on my intro writing game. Hopefully by next time I can think of something a bit more particular and humorous like you guys do. Speaking of which, Logan Huggins is a man seven feet high with a snaky body covered face and all with thick black animal hair and whiskered like a cat. Occasionally, his rationality tempts you to think of him as a man, and it's then that I'm most disgusted by him. Hey, Logan, how you doing? <laughs> Same, similar to Sophie, I'm still working on coming up with a fake intro for myself, so I have to use these real ones for now, but hopefully by next week, I'll be able to come up with a funny intro too. Yeah, yeah, that was very unimaginative, and yeah, thankfully, it's right. allowed the feeling that you're a rational human right. to pass away from me i feel a little less nauseous yeah but people uh, have been very sweet to treat me less and less like animals recently and you know well as they walk by they pat my head because i look sort of like an otter sort of like a man sort of like a big hairy creature so yeah i i I look forward to our discussion this evening yeah so just a, a bit of context about out of the silent planet published in 1938 out of the silent planet was lewis's first work of fiction it was part of a project undertaken with J.R.R. Tolkien to use what they called scientifiction, which is what people used to call science fiction, to remythologize our view of the cosmos, in which Lewis would write a space travel story and Tolkien would write a time travel story, which he never wrote, but he started. Out of the Silent Planet was meant to correct a particular anti-mythical, anti-Christian, scientific view that Lewis found smuggled into most scientifiction. Lewis explicitly counters the secularist philosophies of J.B.S. Haldane and H.G. Wells, as well as the then popular eugenics movement, all of which advocated that humanity should take control of their own destinies rather than submitting to God. But it's also corrective to the far more common assumption that survives, that meaning derived from Christianity does not extend beyond our planet. Lewis suggests that the opposite might be true even as he takes us on a tour of some of the most vivid cultures and geographies ever explored in a space travel book. I want to read just a a letter, part of a letter that, that Lewis wrote to someone about his reason for writing Out of the Silent Planet. So this is written shortly after it was published in 1938. And he wrote, What immediately spurred me to write was Olaf Stapledon's Last and First Men and an essay in J.B.S. Haldane's Possible Worlds, both of which seem to take the idea of such travel seriously and to have the desperately immoral outlook, which I try to pillory in Weston. I like the whole interplanetary idea as a mythology and simply wish to conquer from my own Christian point of view what has always hitherto been used by the opposite side. I think Wells's First Men in the Moon, the best of the sort I have read. I once tried a Burroughs in a magazine just like, and then he goes on and Burrows. The the more astronomy we know, the less likely it seems that other planets are inhabited. Even Mars has practically no oxygen. 
right? So obviously he knew that in some ways this is a fantasy, right? But he wanted to write this to suggest that the very scientific, relatively atheistic worldview sort of put forward by a lot of these science guys was equally a product of our earth culture that taking this particular view of the world that is godless and trying to what's the word i want project it on you know on on all of these other cultures in space and 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 things that that, that has there's no more reason to think that that's universal than to think that christianity is universal and in fact when you look at most cultures here on earth most of them assume some kind of divinity so it's it's just as likely that we'd see you know a cosmos like the one lewis writes about as as like the one wells writes about or haldane or 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 anyone else so far we've covered about the first third of out of the silent planet for those just joining us what's happened so far so our story begins with Ransom, a lovely professor, philologist, academic, going on a walking tour. And as he's going, he encounters this woman. He's trying to find somewhere to stay. Basically, he tells her that he'll go find her son, bring him back from his work. He does this and he gets taken by Weston and Divine, drugged, put in a spaceship. He wakes up off outside of planet Earth and he encounters space, but his big takeaway is that space is not really the proper word because it's all infused with this sort of light and harmony. And so he has a variety of conversations with Weston and Divine. We sort of learn that Weston has this grand scientific dream of furthering the human race at the cost of individual human lives, whereas Divine is in this expedition for money. And so they've taken Ransom along with them. They then land on Malacandra and Logan, you want to take it from there? Yeah, so they land in Malacandra and Ransom sort of stumbles out of the spacecraft. He realizes that Divine and Weston have been here before. They've made contact with what they call Sorns, this type of native creature. And Ransom's imagination is instantly filled with all of these H.G. Wells type horrors and terrors and it sort of gets him all scared and he's like, no way, they're not going to sacrifice me to these thorns. He grabs a knife from the kitchen of the spaceship. I guess this has happened. This happens before he leaves the spaceship. But as he is getting out and the three humans from Earth, they start unpacking the spaceship. They see these thorns appear on the other side of a lake. And then as soon as he realizes Weston and Divine grab his arms and slowly start taking him over to the thorns, he starts pushing against them. I love in the book, it says that he fought against them donkey style with his back bent backwards. So he starts resisting them. It's sort of a small kerfuffle. As they go to cross the lake to bring Ransom to the Sorns, a massive aquatic creature, which I always imagine is like a giant alligator-type creature, smacks out of the water. Weston and Divine freak out. They start shooting their pistols at it, trying to scare it away. And in all of the chaos, Ransom gets up and escapes. So here we now find Ransom alone in a unknown planet, trying to run away from Weston and Divine, who have ill intentions for him, and he's running away from the Sorns, even though he doesn't exactly know what they are or who they are, he has just these terrifying ideas about them. And so now he's sprinting off into the forests of Malacandra. We quickly realize that Malacandra is an incredibly weird and beautiful and different world than Earth is. The part of Malacandra he's 
running through is sort of built out of these big giant crevices in the surface of the planet. So these big sort of canyons with rivers and entire hills and trees and ecosystems in them. And uh, there's all these type of peculiar, beautiful descriptions, but peculiar characteristics of Malachandra. The, the rivers are hot, so they're very like phosphorescent and very almost like bubbly, like soda water, it sounds like. And uh, he essentially runs through as far as he can, as far as his legs will take him, before he passes out for a little nap. He wakes up sometime later, and he continues wandering, sort of halfway walking, halfway running, until he comes across a Sorn, sort of shepherding these other creatures around. And he gets spooked, runs, sort of hides behind some bushes, and then he comes across a different creature, a creature that he will come to find out is a Hrasa. And what? so tonight we're talking nine through 14. Is mm -hmm. that right? Okay, yep. cool. Yep. Yeah. This is one of the things that I think is just amazing about this book in, in ways that I haven't read in most science fiction books where either the planets are exactly like earth or like some earth ecosystem like the desert or something like that right or 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 the forest or whatever or they are just a big hunk of rock you know kind of like what the moon is as far as we know what is what is malachandra like how is it different from any of those things i think it's fascinating yeah malachandra is so different cuz on Earth, we sort of exist on the surface of the planet. And as we come to find out in the story of this book, the citizens of Malachandra sort of, excuse me, the surface of Malachandra has sort of been like scraped and sort of these big giant trenches or ditches, enormous ditches, ditches and great Grand Canyon sort of planet size have sort of been scraped across the planet surface. And all this citizens and inhabitants of Malachandra since the surface of the planet has become in uninhabitable, they sort of relocate into these big giant craters, not craters, but in these big giant canyons. And it's really cool, to, just to your point, Chris, because yeah, so many science fiction books or so many, especially science fiction, TV and film, everything's an Earth-like setting because that way they can go and shoot the movie and like northern california and make it indoor or we'll shoot it in africa and that's tatooine or we'll make it in australia you know in the snow mm -hmm. and that's one of those many hoth or whatever from the star wars movies but anyway but yeah it's i love this and i love ransom's description of as he's coming out of the spaceship is he describes it as like a children's paint box like everything sort of like easter color not easter colors but like watercolor world and the whole ecosystem is so unlike what we see here in, in Earth. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Sophie, did you want to add anything? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, it feels so much like a world written by a fantasy writer, you know? Like, yeah. I love, I guess, Lewis's sort of combination in multiple worlds of writing shows forth. Maybe it's that a lot of science fiction writers aren't as imaginative. I don't know. That's probably an overstatement. I guess imagination just goes elsewhere but yeah it feels and I feel like it's part of Lewis's whole effort to say that space is more alive than we think instead of this just place of death and chaos yeah yeah it's so imaginative interstellar is a little bit like 
this in that I think I think it's a little more hard sci-fi, obviously, than than this. But Lewis shows what gravity does, right? And, and the fact that Mars, Malachandra, sorry, I don't mean to spoil anything. Malachandra has weaker gravity than than Earth means that things can be much much taller and much narrower, right? Without without crumbling. So the mountains are incredibly steep. And at first, when he gets there, he doesn't recognize anything because the shapes are so different from what he's used to. And it's only after being on the planet for a while that you can kind of get a sense of what is what, right? At first, it just looks like a big, massive watercolor, right? That he can't really distinguish between the parts. But gradually, the trees are a little bit more like plants, right? Or like, you know, vegetables in a vegetable garden that grow really high. And the, the, the mountains can be, can afford to be higher. The creatures can afford to be much taller and much kind of more stretched out, right? At least at first they look stretched out to him. And, and the Sorns particularly, he's imagining these insects like from HG Wells's first men on the moon or first men in the moon. And they're not, they're more like old ogres right from from old fairy tales because they they have this like lean aspect and these long noses and, um, and and everything has like this particular color scheme to it right that it's it's all just so evocative and, and really is like nowhere else it's is this kind of cold beautiful world that yeah that that like is very distinct from pretty much anything else in, in science fiction including Lewis's other ransom trilogy books but but yeah it's it's super fun yeah and i think it just continues that whole theme that we talked about last week about how lewis is sort of challenging this assumption that space is dead and terrifying and black and empty and cold he challenges that as he's flying through the heavens and he sees the beauty of the stars and the radiance of the the creation but even on this planet that we sort of come to find out is sort of in an unfallen state it's so beautiful and he, he spends so much time ransom just sort of basking in it and again so many sci-fi films so many sci-fi movies and netflix series and whatever if i see a show on netflix that's that's set in space or set in some sort of near future far distant future show setting i always feel depressed when i look at it because everything's so dark everything's so depressing and empty and nihilistic and gray and blade runner blade runner times a thousand and this is such a this is such a cheerful optimistic view of you know of of outer space yeah yeah absolutely yeah so you know in in today's podcast we're pretty much going to see not only this beautiful planet but the people that live in it right or or one of the people uh one of the peoples that that inhabit it and at the top i read part of his sort of first contact or first conversation with this otter like creature who's very tall he's kind of like if Chewie from star wars was aquatic right and a little more seal like a bit like that except better language than just someone grunting and roaring all the time <laughs> but like you said logan he's hiding from this from the sorns near a kind of a river and 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 you know really drinking some of this some of this warm water and suddenly sees this thing rise from the water. It's about, you know, it's much taller than him. Looks 
very otter-like or seal-like. And then it says, there comes a point at which the actions of fear and precaution are purely conventional, no longer felt as terror or hope by the fugitive. Ransom lay perfectly still, pressing his body as well down into the weed as he could in obedience to a wholly theoretical idea that he might thus pass unobserved. So he's trying to not be seen by the creature, right? He felt little emotion. He noted in a dry, objective way that this was apparently to be the end of his story, caught between a sorn from the land and a big black animal from the water. He had, it is true, a vague notion that the jaws and mouth of the beast were not those of a carnivore, but he knew that he was too ignorant of zoology to do more than guess. Then something happened which completely altered his state of mind. The creature, which was still steaming and shaking itself on the back and had obviously not seen him, opened its mouth and began to make noises. This in itself was not remarkable, but a lifetime of linguistic study assured Ransom almost at once that these were articulate noises. The creature was talking. It had a language. If you are not yourself a philologist, I'm afraid you must take on trust the prodigious emotional consequences of this realization in Ransom's mind. A new world he had already seen, but a, a new and extraterrestrial, a non-human language was a different matter. Somehow he had not thought of this in connection with the Sorns. Now it flashed upon him like a revelation. The love of knowledge is a kind of madness. In the fraction of a second, which it took Ransom to decide that the creature was really talking, and while he still knew that he might be facing instant death, his imagination had leaped over every new fear and hope and probability of a situation to follow the dazzling project of making a Malachandrian grammar. An introduction to the Malachandrian language, the lunar verb, a concise Martian English dictionary. The titles flitted through his mind, and what might not one discover from the speech of a non-human race? The very form of language itself, the principle behind all possible languages, might fall into his hands. Unconsciously, he raised himself on his elbow and stared at the black beast. It became silent. The huge bullet head swung round and lustrous amber eyes fixed him. There was no wind on the lake or in the wood. Minute after minute, in utter silence, the representatives of two so far divided species stared each into the other's face. So, a pretty interesting first contact between a Hross, one of the peoples on Malacandra, and and Ransom, and it's followed by what was read at the top. Right where where the cross is trying to explain Handra and Malakandra and Handramit, and is giving him food. But what what do you all make of this first contact? What strikes you about it as interesting, or maybe even different from most stories of people meeting aliens that you've read? I feel like the emphasis on language is unique. I think I'm trying to think of other instances. I mean, mainly Wells when he sort of meets language does always play some sort of a role. But I feel like in in this instance, it plays such a central role, which makes sense with Ransom as a philologist. But it also, I don't. I feel like there's more of a Ransom has more of a humble approach. Not always, but when he sort of encounters this creature, realizes it can talk, he doesn't immediately go to sort of this proud, arrogant, like scientist looking down and examining this creature that you sometimes feel in other accounts. It feels much more like a sort of mutual 
meeting and exchange, which I think is something that certainly gets carried on. That's one of my favorite things is the more he gets to know the Rasa, like the more he realizes how wise <laughs> they are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I really find that interesting. And again, it's, I often think about this as we understand why C.S. Lewis made a philologist or a linguist go to outer space. And he, he spent so much time emphasizing the language because I, I keep up thinking if he had just sent if his main character had been like a plumber or like an a average Joe blue collar, like it wouldn't have been that. One. He's able because of his profession to dissect and analyze and give us as the reader such a greater appreciation of like he misses this sort of communication and language as a whole, the entire principle of it. And I, I always find that fun. And one of my favorite things about the book. Also, uh, on, also on that note, I can't read this. I can't read this interaction, this first meeting, without picturing the Disney scene from Tarzan where Tarzan and Jane meet on the tree and they're like hold each other's hand up and they do this little sweet romantic hand holding thing. I don't, I'm glad, I love that movie, but I'm glad that didn't come here. That, that scene didn't sort of spill into this book that was written 80 years before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it could have because time travel is, <laughs> is important too. Yeah. I, I, and, and Lewis describes it as, as almost a kind of courtship dance, right? Because these are, these are two species that have not really been in contact and, until this point, right? So it's a first meeting. And I know Lewis must be thinking of the moment in Paradise Lost where Adam and Eve first see each other and Eve is kind of disgusted by the way Adam looks and and runs back to look at her own reflection because she likes it more but 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 yeah there's there's a kind of there's a kind of shyness right between between these two species and obviously it's not due to sexual compatibility but it's due to the fact that these are two beings that are both now that can be friends right but that are very very different from each other and that hurdle of difference needs to be negotiated in some way right it needs to be overcome in some way so that so that friendship can can happen and uh but i love that the moment that allows ransom to be less afraid is the moment when he hears the speech of the cross right that for him that signifies rationality mm -hmm. um and signifies something familiar and something interesting I mean, it's a commonly cited you know, fact of our consciousness that we can't be afraid and and interested in something at the same time. That that those actually, you know, fear and curiosity cannot easily coexist, except perhaps, you know, when we're in a state of wonder. But but there's a there's a kind of taking over of the curious mind, right? He wants to know more about the cross, more about the kind of language that he speaks. And what we read at the top, we start getting this first very basic conversation with the cross. It's interesting in the in the first men in the moon, the Wells book that Lewis in part patterns this on, we don't really get the the language of the moon people, of the of the like insect people that live in the moon, except in like little bits and pieces. They actually learn English. And that allows them to talk. But in this story, Lewis has a philologist go to Malacandra so that he can learn the Malacandrian language. And that's really important because it does something to your perspective, right? Learning 
learning a language makes you think about things in a different way, as as does obviously traveling in space. And a lot of this is is questioning the idea that we as humans have this singular nature that doesn't change and this purpose that's going to be unaltered no matter what we experience and we're not going to let things affect us and we're going to be we're no you know we're going to accomplish our purposes in space and plant lots of human colonies all over the place and even if we evolve and change and things like that 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 will will remain the same because we won't find anything better than ourselves right and this novel in some ways just so deconstructs that and partly does that through language right and through him learning the the Haras's language and 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 thinking the way that Haras thinks so he rides with Hyoi back to where the Hrasa live he gets very seasick because of course the waves are very choppy because they go up higher right and so the worst happens many times, it, it says, and he hopes that the Hras, the Hrasa don't have much experience of vomiting because that way they won't realize that, you know, this this human being of which Ransom is a representative is, you know, losing his lunch all over the river as he looks down to the bottom of the river at the at the eels. But, uh, yeah, what a first impression. What a yeah. great first impression Yeah, for our, not just a personal impression, but like for our whole civilization and species as humans. Like, yeah, here's this sort of round shouldered middle aged man, our first contact, and he's just instantly losing his lunch. But in a serious note, that does go back to the whole theme of humiliating the humans and bringing us down. Us as like a, a species down to where we actually are in sort of the cosmic sense and sort of a, a right relationship to God sense. Because, yeah, it, and we'll see that theme continue, especially when we, so we get to the last third of the book and we see sort of Weston and Divine trying to show how great and wonderful humanity is mm-hmm. in front of the the big audience of Malachandrians. And that, that doesn't work out very well. Nope. No, it does not. Yeah. He also, as he's as he's... As he and Hyoi are taking this boat through this river canyon, suddenly realizes that the that the highlands, the Harandra, that to to Logan's point, as 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 you were saying, Logan, it's not really mountains. And he was thinking before that it wasn't. In fact, that whole cloud-like red thing that he saw when he first got off the ship, those aren't clouds either. That's the actual surface of Malacandra. And it seems to be mostly airless. And then the Hondramat, where the where the Hrasa live, are these deep cracks in the planet's surface here, like close to the equator of the planet, right, where it's warmest. And that's where you can get oxygen, heat, and water and life. So there's this, you know, it's 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 so fantastic because it starts out, you know, this this whole book starts out with this very evocative description of an earthly landscape. And Lewis just kind of continues in that vein and just describes this fantastical landscape. He was struck by the vivid contrast between the Harandra and Handramit, like a rope of jewels, the gorge spread beneath him, purple, sapphire, blue, yellow, and pinkish white, a rich and variegated inlay of wooded land and disappearing, reappearing, ubiquitous water. 
Malacandra was less like Earth than he had been beginning to suppose. The Handramit was no true valley rising and falling with the mountain chain it belonged to. Indeed, it, it did not belong to a mountain chain. It was only an enormous crack or ditch of varying depth running through the high and level Harandra. The latter, he now began to suspect, was the true surface of the planet. Certainly would appear as surface to a terrestrial astronomer. So, so yeah, he's gradually putting together that that this is one of many cracks, or 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 one of a few really cracks in the surface of Mars, where all the life is, where the heat is, where the you know oxygen is, where the forests are, which kind of allows Lewis to write this in the first place, right? Because people by Lewis's time know that Mars is mostly barren and red, right? Although we haven't gotten to the moment where it reveals that it's Mars. So I'm going to going to hold off on that a bit. And it's also has to do with the with the myth that he's going to introduce us to later on and in, in the, which we'll cover you know, you know the next episode. Other points about this about this first meeting with Hyoi or this journey to the to the to the Harasa's village. Just a little small comment that he makes at the beginning of chapter ten, where he, Ransom is sort of trying to figure out what is going on between the Harasa and the Sorens, and he sort of assumes, you know, maybe the Harasa because they're nice, maybe they're the animals of the Sorens who must be super intelligent, and then he immediately is like. He says his whole imaginative training somehow encouraged him to associate superhuman intelligence with monstrosity of form and ruthlessness of will. So it's just like another little point along the narrative where you sort of have Lewis offering this very modern or postmodern view of humanity. I mean, that sounds very much like, you know, Nietzsche's will to power there. Like power is immediately straight where you're going to go to and nobody's going to have great morals anymore. And I like how he just kind of, through story, slowly deconstructs this false perception of humanity, of intelligence. Because really, even as you're learning about these non-human creatures, I think at the same time you're learning more about humanity as well as like another sort of rational being. Especially because like it, it made me think of in Wells's time machine, which is time travel, but almost like going to another planet where you have the Eloy and the Morlocks and like the whole time the traveler is trying to figure out who's the smarter one, like who's oppressing the other, that sort of thing. So almost immediately you kind of have that set up and then he's going to subvert it again and again, which I think is why I love this book because it's like science fiction that I already love. Like I love Wells and then you subvert it and ah, it's just even better. Yeah, it's it's difference without dialectic right there's a there, there's not this ob, he he keeps assuming that there's going to be a clash between these different types of people but they are just kind of interdependent and cool with each other and they you know make little jokes about each other because they find each other funny right but but there isn't this kind of hatred or abuse or using of one species by the other in the way that you, you know, in the way that you often have on, on Earth. And, and Lewis is suggesting, hey, maybe the reason that things happen that way on Earth is not because that's the way things should be or because that's just the way all life evolves or, or whatever else. It's because of sin. But yeah, it's 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 
it's so fun to to see this you know to see these things questioned that we often tend to take for granted logan you said something about connections between the harasa and and narnian creatures um, yeah i yeah of course yeah i was curious what you guys made of this if you guys see any fun connections here but i found it interesting as we get into the harasa and their sort of civilization and how ransom slowly but surely discovers how their language and how to communicate with them and sort of their entire society and eventually does the same with the other members of malachandria is there any connection there between these creatures that are alert and conscious and can speak and are literate and the talking animals in narnia do you see any sort of connection there myself i sort of find it interesting that both these inhabitants of malachandra and the animals of narnia they're he holds them up pretty high they're generally very noble they're admire admirable they are doing the right thing they're they're they have families and children and they they teach their children wisdom and they you know have very admirable qualities but i also was like there's not a ton like am i overthinking that is there is there too much of a is it similar at all or am i just making that connection up in my head what do you guys think i feel like when he says in the part that chris read at the beginning of when he thinks of the cross as an animal instead of starting with him as a man and then he has that delightful vision and talks about how, you know, it's, it's as though paradise had never been lost and earliest dreams were true, the charm of speech and reason. I feel like your idea seems right on. Like, it, it feels like maybe it's Lewis's dream is that we have talking animals and that this is sort of the way it was meant to be, <laughs> right. that humans and animals communicate. And so it would make sense to pop up here, to pop up in Narnia as well, as sort of like ultimate paradise. Yeah, and I forget sure. if I forget if Tolkien refers to this or not in on fairy stories, if he refers to talking animals and fairy stories as being kind of a dream of, you know, pre-lapsarian humanity, or if that's just some other essay, maybe even by Lewis. But yeah, this dream that we can talk with other things that are like us and yet not us right it seems like a very deeply held dream and so much fantasy is written and even science fiction is written to to imagine what it would be like to to be able to do that it seems like some deep part of humankind really misses that or longs for that and lewis you know recognizes that that that's part of the that's part of the motif of talking animals, right? Uh, that's that's part of the appeal. He also draws a division both in the Ransom trilogy and in Narnia between Khnau, right? Whether they're animal Khnau or or human Khnau or, or or alien Khnau or whatever, and just normal animals right that and we're, and we're meant to take care of normal animals and and you know and and to have a kind of fellowship with them but they are clearly lower right whereas there are things that are animal like that are higher right and that have that have sort of been elected by god to have evolved to rational status right whether whether in narnia with some of the talking beasts or whether 
you know, here with the with the three species of of being on Malacandra or elsewhere in the Ransom trilogy. So there's a I think I think there's definitely a connection. And yeah, it 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 doesn't it doesn't mean that we don't distinguish still between one type of being and and another more rational type, but it does get back to this desire to have communion with that which is in some ways essentially different from us but that we can still kind of like learn things from. Yeah. And I, I, I agree completely. And I think also just the fact that similar to Narnia, the villains are humans, the villains are us, you know, our characteristics come out so strongly in West and in divine in Miraz. And a lot of, I know you guys just finished out of, what is it? The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Like again, so many, I guess the white witch is not really human, but she's sort of humanoid. But anyway, all that to say, yeah, it's so much of its villains are just people. And they're it's that fallen nature again that's causing the issues and causing all this conflict. So yeah. 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 And and we've talked a lot about education this this you know season on on this podcast and, and Voyage of the Dawn Treader as well. And when he gets to in chapter eleven and chapter twelve, the Horta village, and lives among them, it's a kind of education for him, right? He's unlearning a lot of these basic ideas that he's grown up with, and learning really how to be a how to be a man, right? How to be a human, yeah. in in the best sense of the word, human, right? Even though, like, obviously they're not human, they're cross. But it says, ever since he awoke on the spaceship, Ransom had been thinking about the amazing adventure of going to another planet and about his chances of returning from it. What he had not thought about was being on it. It was with a kind of stupefaction each morning that he found himself neither arriving in nor escaping from, but simply living on Malacandra, waking, sleeping, eating, swimming, and even as the days passed, talking. The wonder of it smote him most strongly when he found himself about three weeks after his arrival actually going for a walk. A few weeks later, he had his favorite walks and his favorite foods. He was beginning to develop habits. He knew a male from a female cross at sight, and even individual differences were becoming plain. Joy, who had first found him miles away to the north, was a very different person from the gray-muzzled venerable Nohra, who was daily teaching him the language, and the young of the species were different again. They were delightful. You could forget all about the rationality of Harasa in dealing with them. Too young to trouble him with the baffling enigma of reason in an inhuman form, they solaced his loneliness, as if he had been allowed to bring a few dogs with him from the earth. The cubs, on their part, felt the liveliest interest in the hairless goblin which had appeared among them. With them, and therefore indirectly with their dams, he was a brilliant success. So it's just kind of like a picture of what life is like as the weeks go on, right? Um, in this, in this Ross village, and uh, kind of goes on to talk to talk about um, different, you know, cross words. So the fact that they are slowly making him think again about his assumptions regarding, especially like anthropological assumptions, right? Of the community in general, his gener his earlier impressions were all gradually being corrected. His first diagnosis of their culture was what he called Old Stone Age. The few cutting instruments they possessed were made of stone. 
They seemed to have no pottery, but a few clumsy vessels used for boiling, and boiling was the only cookery they attempted. Their common drink, vessel, dish, and ladle, all in one was the oyster-like shell in which he had first tasted Ross hospitality. The fish which it contained was their only animal food. Vegetable fare they had in great plenty and variety, some of it delicious. Even the pinkish-white weed which covered the whole hand dramat was edible at a pinch, so that if he had starved before Hyoi found him, he would have starved amidst abundance. So, so kind of opening up this whole very complex culture, right? And our tendency, of course, trained by the way that we apply not even good evolution science, but like kind of like vague ideas of the way evolution works to cultures is like we go from very simple to very complex, right? And we, of course, are the pinnacle coming the latest and the most complex, right? And he's kind of like, no, you don't know that. Like you have some simple stone tools but that doesn't say anything about the rationality of people, right? And that doesn't say anything about their ability to make poetry. There's this passage in The Problem of Pain where it talks about the fall, where Lewis is kind of like, you know, it may be that unfallen man in its Adamic state maybe was like fairly hairy and made crude tools and things like that, but you might have been tempted to fall down and worship him, right? Because of the like excellence of his his humanity right and i think this is this is very close to the same thing or the same basic idea right that just because your tools are crude doesn't mean that you are crude right but uh, yeah what what other kinds of correctives does he get here in these in these chapters about the about the hrosa i do i i do appreciate the fact that he's still with his limited language limited knowledge of the language he's still trying to figure out the social hierarchy of the planet he's still trying to figure out so, okay, if the Harasa are sort of the farmer, agricultural, do they serve the Sorns? Are the Sorns subservient to them? And he tries to ask them all these different questions. And each time they sort of shut him down of like, no, no, we're, we just all serve Oyarsa. And he sort of begins to see how, like you said, Chris, we're so used to a very specific, very complex structure order social structure and civilization sort of built on top of the backs of others and someone's got to be taking advantage of someone else here someone's got to be there's got to be some sort of conflict or some sort of hierarchy between the between the, the species and they i appreciate the fact that they're just like nope that's that's not how it works we we just sort of follow oyarsa and we coexist peacefully with everyone else yeah yeah yeah, and he's he's kind of assuming this simplicity, right, of 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 them in terms of their and and they are in some ways simple, but that doesn't mean they're dumb, right? And that doesn't mean they don't know things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a good simplicity. I was listening to Wade Center podcast on this, which, by the way, we're going to have Doctor David C. Downing on this podcast later on to to talk about the out of the silent planet. But but one of the things that they were saying was this is supposed to be a little bit like Gulliver's Travels, where he visits the, oh gosh, Quinnums, you know, even the huh sound at the beginning of words, right? That this is a kind of an ideal society that, that he's visiting, that even though they're not like terribly technologically advanced, that's fine. They're really smart and they know what they're about, right? So now the real revolution is understanding of the Hrasa began when he had learned enough of their language to attempt some satisfaction of their curiosity about himself. 
in answer to their questions, he began by saying that he had come out of the sky. Hnohra immediately asked from which planet or Earth, Handra, Ransom, who had deliberately given a childish version of the truth in order to adapt, adapt it to the supposed ignorance of his audience, was a little annoyed to find Hnohra painfully explaining to him that he could not live in the sky because <laughs> there was no air in it. He might have come through the sky, but he must have come from Ahandra. He was quite unable to point Earth out to them in the night sky. They seemed surprised at this inability and repeatedly pointed out to him a bright planet low on the western horizon, a little south of where the sun had gone down. He was surprised that they selected a planet instead of a mere star and stuck to their choice. Could it be possible that they understood astronomy? Unfortunately, he still, too, he still knew too little of the language to explore their knowledge. He turned the conversation by asking them the name of the bright southern planet and was told that it was Thulkandra, the silent world or planet. Why do you call it Thulk? He asked. Why silent? No one knew. The Saroni knew. No, said the Saroni know, said Knahra. That is the sort of thing they know. So, so this great, you know, moment where it's, it's like, you know, he's trying to be like C-3PO with the Ewoks, right? And uh, it, it just, uh, it doesn't fly because they know too much and they, but they don't know, they don't know more than they need to know, right? And, and he's asking them about, you know, further trivia, right? And they're kind of like, yeah, yeah, the, you know, the Serona would know that we, we don't really, but it's, uh, yeah, it's. Again, like making him re-examine like that dream that he has at the beginning of the of the book where these queer creatures come out from the door in the wall, right, and say, who, who, after he says, you know, they, they echo his, who are you or, or and, and, uh, and, and this is him in being forced to reevaluate how he understands non-human life. He's also mm -hmm. being forced to reevaluate human life and, and the way that and the way that we are as a civilization and the way that he is as a person. So yeah, there is there is so much here that's so so good. Um what are some other highlights of his time with the with the Harasa? I should say this is sort of where we get the introduction to the Eldil, correct? Yeah. And for those reading along, this is sort of we see Ransom have these strange little interactions where he walks up on someone in the Haras village, and they seem to be talking to no one. There's no one there that at least he can see. And uh, slowly but surely, he starts to learn that these creatures are called Eldil, and that there is someone there, and there are these, these, these creatures called Eldil. And he goes from not being really able to see them at all to slowly sort of, he characterizes it as sort of a slight change in the quality of light it's this really neat language he uses of his sort of it reminds me almost like a different dimension or something sort of about the light itself that's the quality of the light is off and so he, he slowly begins to understand that there is something there that will see them become more and more important as we go i love i don't think this is jumping too far ahead but in the beginning of chapter 12 when he's having the the conversation with Hoyt, i don't know how to say his name but they're having a conversation about pleasure. And this is like, I think when I first read this book in high school, this passage above all else like stuck out to me from the book. And like, I would write it on my wall and stuff. Just one of my favorite things. So the Ross tells Ransom that pleasure is full grown only when it is remembered. 
You are speaking, man, as if the pleasure were one thing and the memory another. It is all one thing. What you call remembering is the last part of the pleasure, as the craw is the last part of a poem. When you and I met, the meeting was over very shortly. It was nothing. Now it is growing something as we remember it. But still we know very little about it. What it will be when I remember it as I lie down to die. What it makes me all my days till then. That is the real meeting. The other is only the beginning of it. And they sort of continue a whole conversation sort of in this line about how we humans try, if we have any sort of pleasure or any sort of good thing, we try to like hold on to it or try to repeat it again and again. And the Rasa don't approach life that way. Like they have all sorts of things that only happen once in their lives. And the memory of it becomes this like very important part of the whole process of experience. And I think this is a theme he picks up again in Paralandra as far as like mm -hmm. trying to rewind to life like a movie. And it's like, it, it doesn't work that oh, way. Oh man, um, speaking of having things over and over again, he really does <laughs> pick yeah, up on maybe. this in Paralandra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, but I just think it's, it's so profound and at least helps me when I'm sort of experiencing moments in life that I wish you could sort of hold on to forever, remembering yeah. that it's in its entire process and especially that like what what it means to you or what it makes you for the day that you die, like just sort of seeing life as this whole span in every single moment. Yeah. It's super cool. Super wise from the Rasa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is so profound. I love it. And, and the way and the way that they get on the subject is he's trying to figure out, okay, are are there are there not any wars between the different people on Mars, especially like between the species on Mars? Like, is there ever limited resources? And they're like, no, of course there's not limited resources. We're fine. And he's like, well, what if you have too many young and like, you know, you just don't have enough to go around? And he's like, why would we have too many young? Right. And it turns ends up being like this conversation about sex, which is really interesting and pretty foreign, I'd say, even to even to Christians nowadays. Right. This idea that like, oh, yeah, you know, sex happens like once or twice in your life. And, and then you, you and then you go back and you remember it. And, you know, that's 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 part of the process. Right. Which is very interesting. It's not something that most you know, Orthodox Christians even would. It's it's a very medieval kind of view of sex, or maybe maybe a bachelor's you know view of how things work between married people. Uh, but it's it's really you know it gets into this point about pleasure that I think you're absolutely right, Sophie. It's it's an excellent point, right? That there comes a time when people grow old, and I think so much in our culture makes us want to hold on to youth as the only valuable part of existence. And he's saying, no, no, no. Like you, you miss out if you do that. That's not, that's not fully engaging in the, in the pleasure of, and in, in any of the pleasures, right? There's the immediate experience of the pleasure. And then there's the thinking about that experience of pleasure. And that's part of the pleasure too. So that it sort of, it sort of grows as as we make stories about it, as we make poems about it, as we remember it. But 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 yeah, and it's it's a particular, very poetic view of of the world, uh, and a view that myth reminds us of. But uh, yeah, there's also a moment when they, which which I also really like, when Ransom is trying to figure out, okay, what about this Hanakra thing? Right, that that you all hunt and that tries to kill you, like it, it 
doesn't that make the world kind of a tough place, right? Now, if 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 this Nakra can kill Cross, Cross, and he says the Hrosa would be bent, Hrosa. By the way, bent. The word bent just means a sinful, but obviously there's no word in the cross language for for sinful so they're using the analogy of bent which is drawing on you know the the concept of sin as it's stated in like other languages people will say bent for for sinful or, or off crossa would be bent crossa if they let him the hanakra get so near as to kill his their their young long before he had come down so far we should have sought him out right so it's good to be brave right even in an unfallen world it's good to be brave and to risk your life right to to confront danger no man it is not a few deaths roving the world around him that make it now miserable it is a bent now that would blacken the world and i say also this i do not think the forest would be so bright nor the water so warm nor love so sweet if there were no danger in the lakes, I will tell you a day in my life that has shaped me. Such a day as comes only once, like love or serving Oyarsa in Meldalorn. Then I was young, not much more than a cub, when I went far, far up the Handramit to the land where stars shine at midday and even water is cold. The great waterfall I climbed. I stood on the shore of Balki, the pool, which is the place of most awe in all the worlds. The walls of it go up forever and ever, and huge and holy images are cut in them, the work of old times. There is the fall called the Mountain of Water. Because I have stood there alone, Maladil and I, Maladil, by the way, is the name of God, for even Yarsa sent me no word. My heart has been higher, my song deeper, all my days. But do you think it would have been so unless I had known that in Balki, Hnar... Hneraki dwelled, the, the Hanakra. There I drank life because death was in the pool. That was the best of drinks, save one. And he says, the, you know, the, the very best drink will be when I go to Maladil, right, when I'm, when I finally die. But uh, yeah, this, uh, this point about danger and death and how in some ways it makes life worth living in, even in an unfallen world is, is really interesting to me. And I wonder if it, I wonder if part of the reason that Lewis does this is is because it's it's Malacandra is spoiler alert Mars right and Mars is a needs to be a martial planet it needs to be somewhere where there's some sort of fight right so there is a, at least a Hanakra even though it's unfallen and people can show their bravery by going out against the Hanakra. I think this is the section where we you mentioned them already but we sort of are introduced we're introduced to two new names in the story of Oyarsa and Maleldil and that the Harasa sort of show him or at least vaguely sort of hint at who these people are. They sort of ransom eventually asked them about sort of who's in charge and they always refer to this Oyarsa person. And he's eventually like, well, who's, who does Oyarsa re- report to? And they like, well, Maleldil. And so he, he's starting to get these names and these sort of titles, or me, they start getting these character names, but he doesn't really know who they are yet. And I, I appreciate how throughout the whole book, we sort of see those names filled in for we, we as the reader find out and discover who those people are, who those characters are the same way Ransom does. And it's really fun to see uh, the L deal, the Mil- 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 deal, 
and OERs is sort of, we discover who they are. And uh, yeah, I, I really do. That's one of my favorite things about the book, that sort of existence of those characters, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We get we get this kind of a catechesis, right? Where, where Ransom says he was worried that he might have to undertake religious instruction of, of these people because like nobody really, well, you know, enjoys especially not if you're an anglican enjoys proselytizing right Even though like obviously it's their duty right but he's he's kind of like oh gosh we have to like uh, tell them about the right view of god and stuff and then instead he's catechized right and and they talk to him about Malodil the young right who dwells with the old one right and and the idea of now rational creatures the Sorns, the Hrosa, and the Fifiltrigi, right? Who are, and the Fifiltrigi are the maker, and they make things out of gold. So they're like frog like animals, taper headed, frog bodied animals who are very clever with, with making things. And in addition to the, in addition to the Saroni, and they all seem to, at least according to the Hrosa, they all seem to like just live in harmony. And then, of course, there's the Oyarsa, who's the guardian of the planet. Right, who who's a kind who who the Eldil come from, and he seems to be kind of like the Eldila. But uh, yeah, an Eldil does come and talks to them at the end of chapter eleven, and uh, and then also at the end of chapter twelve, and they find out that. Uh, Tell me if this isn't right, but I think the next big thing that happens is. As Ransom is telling them his story, he mentions this big giant creature that came out of the, the lake and chased them off. And that's why he ran, ran from Ransom and Divine. Yeah. And everyone gets excited because they recognize it as the Hanakra, this yeah. sort of like yeah. enormous sea creature that they as a civilization, it's like they like almost start partying. They get so excited mm -hmm. and they they love it. I love that there's like there's a few mothers that try to get their kids out of the shallows of the water, but everyone else is excited. It's like, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. There these this these hunter tribes, it's like the big game is is in their area. And so yeah, they start gearing up all the men of the tribe, all the men of the of the Haras, they start gearing up to go out and spear down the Hanakra. And because Ransom is sort of their guest of honor, they they invite him along. And so yeah. now Ransom not only finds himself on a new planet with new creatures, but now he's sort of thrust into this incredible situation of I have to like show that I'm not a coward in front of this Martian civilization and do yeah. something really like you said i have to find my manhood and do this really manly sea creature killing heroic thing so yeah i love yeah. that for ransom the guy who was throwing up on a boat like 20 minutes ago now he's having to step into to be the sea hero yeah 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 i mean it's been a few weeks come on it's been a few oh, that's weeks true. i guess 20 was, minutes and like book reading barfing time. yeah uh, yeah but, uh, but yeah absolutely so it's not the elder that tells them about the hanakra it's it's because they find out from ransom but yeah they are they are so excited that they're going to be able to hunt this monster right and it's uh it's 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 a it's a kind of activity that we would think that a lot of us would probably think like oh well this would only happen on a fallen world right where you'd have a dangerous creature that would try to kill you but you know as the passage about the pool of balki shows right there's something about danger 
right? There's something about the the possibility that you will have to die in giving your life for your people and risking it to kill something that that you know in Lewis's view anyway is not necessarily fallen, which is which is very interesting. And neither yeah, is if, death necessarily. Yeah, that I totally agree. To me, it, it just reminds me so much of his the essay a men without chests sort of this like mm-hmm. in an unfallen world and sort of this idyllic planet the men of the village the these characters are still called to do something hard to do something with weight that's dangerous that's actually has some weight to it and yeah it it, it always it also sort of reminds me makes me laugh of how when the kids first end up in Narnia and I think father Christmas gives them the presents. It's like weapons. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, he gives them a sword, he gives them a bow and arrow and some of the other things too. But and he says, these aren't toys. These are tools. Essentially it's like, yeah, yeah I, I re- appreciate that so much about Lewis and the fact that he, he imagines these fairy tale worlds and these fantasy worlds, but they're also worlds where you have to step up and be the man and the woman that you need to be and it it takes effort and it takes that determination and grit we see that a lot in out of the silent planet we see that here as ransoms getting in the boats to hunt down the hanakra but that's one of my favorite things about the next book paralandra is that we see ransom having to have a conflict and not to spoil that book but to hint at it whenever we inevitably cover that one but we see him transition from a sort of intellectual argument conflict into like an actual face-to-face conflict, physical conflict. And he has these great conversations in Paralandra of that exact thing of having to, for lack of a better word, man up and be courageous and be that hero, even though he's just a philologist, you know, just because, you know, even though he's just ransom, he was sort of destined to fulfill that heroic role. And I, I love that so much. In the first part of chapter 13 here in Out of the Silent Planet, he Lewis writes one of my favorite lines ever. And that's similar to how you were talking about your favorite line earlier, Sophie, you wrote it on your wall. Like I I don't have I don't have any tattoos and I'm I'm not ever gonna get tattoos, but if I were, I would get this tattooed somewhere on my body. I'm not sure where. But Ransom's in the boats, he's getting sort of he's trying to psych himself up to do this heroic to at least join in the tribe in this heroic Hanakra hunting. And let's see. He's sort of going back and forth in like moments of self-doubt. And he he knows previously he's had false senses of confidence and they, those always fall on, on his face. But here he says, I'm so sorry. Whatever happens, he must, whatever happens, he must show that the human species were also now. He was also too well aware that such resolutions might look very different when the moment came, but he felt an unwanted assurance that somehow or another, he would be able to go through with it. It was necessary. And the necessary was always possible. Uh, that last sentence of the necessary is always possible. That, oh man, I could get that tattooed on my chest. Or maybe mm-hmm. not my chest. I would get that. I, I love that so much. And that theme of C.S. Lewis calling us to be heroic and to be brave and to do the hard stuff that resonates with me so, so much. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot there that I think is, that I think is great. And I think you're absolutely right to bring in men without chests, the the first part of the abolition of man, because this is exactly why ransom is among poets, right? The, the Hrasa are 
natural poets, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because because that's the that's the role of poetry, according to Lewis. The role of poetry is to is to stir you up to do the things that you know are right to do, right? To to make that kind of emotional appeal, so that if your emotions have been rightly ordered, uh, according to uh, a kind of like you know, if you if you read the right. If you've read the right stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. According to like a functional emotional ordering or hierarchy, right? Then reminding you of these things will 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 give you the the courage to die in war, right? For your people, for for the for the right for the right reasons. So I think that's I think that's absolutely what's what's happening here. And that he, you know, the fact that now that he was going to show that human human beings were also now is important, right? That now is not just it's not just about your brain and being able to talk, but it's also about being able to defy death, right? To to risk your life because animals naturally don't do that, right? You you don't like unless you're like a particularly loyal dog, right? But but mostly it's it's humans that are supposed to be able to die for a good cause right or 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 to face death for a good cause generally you're going to avoid that risk if you're an unreasoning animal so it's not just about how intelligent you are whether you can speak or or whatever else but it's about it's about your chest right it's about whether you can whether you can go into war go into perilous situations and do what's right in 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 those in those places but uh, so he, he's he's like getting all psyched up. Um, something long sleeping in the blood awoke in ransom. It did not seem impossible at this moment that even he might be the Hanakra Slayer, that the fame of Man Hanakrapunt might be handed down to posterity in this world that knew no other man. But he had had such dreams before and knew how they ended. Imposing humility on the newly risen riot of his feelings, he turned his eyes to the troubled water of the current which they were skirting without entering and watched intently for a long time. Nothing happened. He became conscious of the stiffness of his attitude and deliberately relaxed his muscles. Presently, Huynh reluctantly went aft to paddle and Hyoi came forward to take his place. Almost as soon as the change had been effected, Hyoi spoke softly to him and said, without taking his eyes off the current, there is an Eldil coming to us over the water. Ransom could see nothing or nothing that he could distinguish from imagination in the dance of sunlight on the lake. A moment later, Hyoi spoke again, but not to him. What is it, Skyborn? What happened next was the most uncanny experience Ransom had yet had on Malacandra. He heard the voice. It seemed to come out of the air about a yard above his head, and it was almost an octave higher than the crosses, higher even than his own. He realized that a very little difference in his ear would have made the Eldil as inaudible to him as it was invisible. It is the man with you, Hyoi, said the voice. He ought not to be there. He ought to be going to Ayarsa. Bent now of his own kind from Thilkandra are following him. He should go to Ayarsa. If they find him anywhere else, there will be evil. He hears you, Skyborn, said Hyoi. And have you no message for my wife? You know that she wishes to you know what she wishes to be told. I have a message for Hlary, said the Eldil, but you will not be able to take it. I go to her now myself. All that is well. Only let the man go to Oyarsa. There was a moment's silence. 
So just as he's psyching himself up to be the Hanakrapunt, right? Here comes the Eldil, right? The the angel basically and says, oh, you, you shouldn't be here. This is this is not the place for you. You need to go to the Oyarsa. You know, go through the proper chain of command, please, before you come into this this you know strange planet. And uh, and and he has to sort of, I mean, the the right thing to do anyway is to check that rush of emotion and bravery, right? Even though he wants to kill the Hanakra, he should be able to check that and immediately obey, right? Which which he ends up not quite doing, and it results in the death of Hyoi, in the death in the death of his friend, just as they've killed. The Hanakra, right? Just as they've actually succeeded in this thing that they came to do, and as they're like local heroes, right? They hear this the sound, and and it's a very, it's a very, you know, in the in the middle of in the middle of him embracing Hyoi, right, and and saying, yeah, Hanakra punt, killer. He hears this very familiar sound of an English rifle, and Hyoi falls down, and he knows. That it's the men who have followed him there. That it's Weston and Divine, and they've they've killed Hyoi, thinking that he was only an animal. And Hyoi's last words are "na ma," it muttered, and then at last "man knakrapunt," or in other words, you know, "man knakra slayer," and then and then he dies. Right. So so there's clearly forgiveness, and it's this kind of touching touching moment, but it's ransom's fault that his friend is is now dead so so yeah final points about about this hanakra slaying or or any of any of the other moments that that he spends with these ross i really appreciate the insistence on obeying the elder you know like mm. the rasa immediately recognize like when is like well that's because you didn't follow him and you're standing here and that's why this bad thing has happened like we should have sent you off immediately to obey him and i mean we obviously see the immediate consequences of him not following at the first insistence which feels very fairy taleish. i feel like of mm. you know you get this yeah. command oh like lilith you know like vane gets this command he doesn't follow through and all the bad things happen because he wouldn't just obey and submit to authority mm. which is yet again lewis pushing back on a very modern understanding of man just sort of carving our own path doing whatever he wants taking power, using that power, but that true humanity comes through submission to a higher authority and recognition that when they say do something, you better just do it. So, which again, I, I love that that happens in a, in a science fiction story. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that we explored in uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader episode and in one of them was this idea of like, okay, so People have this desire to discover, right? And to and to go on adventures and to do things that are out of the ordinary. To what extent does that conflict with our need to be in submission, right? And in other words, to stay in the place that we were assigned, right? And in, in this anyway, Lewis seems to be saying... Yeah, you know what a pretty good boundary for humankind is? The earth. Maybe <laughs> maybe let's not go off the earth because maybe you know the rest of the rest of the 
cosmos or the you know solar system or whatever maybe that's kind of you know better off if if they're it's not subjected to us right if you know elon musk doesn't get to go to mars or 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 something like that you know so it's it's this really interesting experiment i'm not sure honestly like i don't know where i come down on it especially if there are not like native cultures or 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 beings on other planets i don't know that i think it's like the worst thing in the world for us to go to another planet as long as we don't think that like some amazing eternal thing is gained by us like spreading out because there is this thing in humans as well that desires to discover right that desires to go hunt hunt the nakra that or 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 desires to go to aslan's country right and one of the things that we talked about in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader was how Lewis is very consciously drawing on both the Tennyson poem, Ulysses, which glorifies this impulse of wanting to go where no one's gone before, right? But then also the canto in Dante's Inferno that Tennyson's Ulysses is based on where Ulysses is being punished for going past the Mediterranean Sea into the area of the earth that people are not supposed to go to. And and Lewis very clearly has both of these things in mind as he's writing The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And I think here too, there's, there's a certain question of, okay, yeah, J.B.S. Haldane and Olaf Stapledon are both wrong to want to conquer all of the planets in the name of humanities so that we extend humanity forever Right. And and we get to like we get some semblance of immortality like that's clearly wrong. But there's also a reason why people like to read sci fi. Right. There's also a reason why people like to read about going to new planets and, and, and meeting new species. And is this all a bad thing on our part? Right. Because you could read this as like, yes, like he if he hadn't met Hyoi if he hadn't hung out with the Harasa all this time, Hyoi would still be alive and he'd be carrying out his, like he'd get to meet his kid, right? And, and Ransom kind of ruined that. So so is there a greater good that's being accomplished here as a, as a result of Weston and Divine's mad mission, even though their motives obviously are wrong? Or, or is this all a blunder from beginning to end? Well, I think looking at this, the Ransom trilogy as a whole, I think you can see how it there is a overarching journey that Ransom goes on through all three books and so much good. He does so much good and so much good is done because he goes on this journey. And what I love about it is this this journey, even in Out of the Silent Planet, the very beginning of that journey starts because he's sort of pressured into making doing the right thing for this like widow on the side of the road who's missing her son. He was just walking down the road, minding his own business on a walking tour. And he's faced with the decision of, do I help this person or not? And he decides to help this person. And then before you know it, he's like trying to slay a Hanakra on Mars and he's committed to, and he's down this incredible sort of rabbit hole of a, of a story and of a journey. But to get to your point, though, I, I love, as a Christian, I love that. And even though Ransom here, he disobeys, he sort of delays in doing the right thing, and that causes some negative consequences. It's still part of this overarching plan and 
it still falls into Malel Dill's ultimate plan and it still falls into benef- being beneficial and there's still blessings that come out of it, even though it, Ransom isn't a perfect, I don't know, Lancelot or perfect sort of like blank character that never makes a mistake, never does anything wrong. Mm-hmm. But he, even despite the fact that he, and, and I love Ransom because he's not a moron, he's not a coward. He he is a really strong character and he makes very rational, moral decisions. He's still seen here making mistakes but it's through the, it, despite those mistakes, there's still glory and there's still blessing and there's still reconciliation and not just in this book, but in Perilandra and especially in out, was it in the, especially in that hideous strength in the third book. So yeah, I love that. Even when, even when we trip and fall and make the wrong decision or even if we feel like we have the right intentions, because here I love that Ransom's delaying. The only reason he was delaying because he's all hyped up on his own, like, no, I want to help. I, I want to do, I want to be a man. I want to step up and do this thing or whatever. But uh, he, it wasn't his place to be. And even though he decided that and it was the wrong thing for him to be, the wrong, the wrong place for him to be in, it still works out for the good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in Ransom's case, at least the reason he's an, in Malacandra he's doing what he's supposed to do, right? And he does mm-hmm. screw up and not obeying the Eldil right away and all of that. But, uh, you know, he's he's t- keeping a promise to an old lady, right? When <laughs> when he gets kidnapped and put on this ship and taken there. So he's, he's clear of blame for the most part. But I wonder just about this human impulse to want to boldly go where no man has gone before right to what extent lewis is saying that's sinful because god's placed us where we are and we shouldn't go elsewhere right and to what extent he's saying well you know we like to read about that and that's not bad obviously because i like wrote books about it maybe the impulse itself the, the the impulse to adventure right and he he knew from chivalric romance aventure is 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 a good thing right maybe it's the fact that knights accept an adventure that presents itself to them right rather than going out and trying to transcend boundaries or or whatever else and 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 make themselves immortal or or whatever but but yeah it's it's interesting uh, and maybe just the ring is a good way to you know, a good analogy for it that if you're if you're trying to transcend your natural limitations out of selfishness, then that's bad. And if you're trying to, but if you're trying to just sort of like, you know, go on an adventure like Bilbo went on, that's not necessarily bad, right? Especially when it like shows up at your door. But I think I think though there's a reason that Bilbo ends up getting that ring, right? And and these things are not as easy to separate as we as we sometimes think they are all right we are we are long out of time and so i'll just say that he you know is is told to go visit augre in his tower he doesn't know what augre is he gets up to the harandra almost dies because there's no oxygen up there and then finally stumbles into this cavern and augre is there and augre is a sorn Dun dun dun. So we're gonna meet a Soren next time around. So Logan, you you have our, our kind of final question you're yeah, asking it's, about. It's that it's that time again, folks. It's the Inklings Variety Hour end of the show, goofy, silly question of the episode. 
And if you have any of these for any of the books you know we're reading out, send them to us. We always love hearing people's feedback on the show. And please, we love things that are goofy and questions. So send them our way. The question I present to you guys tonight is, we see throughout the Space Trilogy, throughout the Ransom Trilogy, spoilers, Ransom gets sent to Mars and eventually gets sent to Venus. And then the last book sort of happens here on Earth. But my question is, and what I would love to hear you guys elaborate on, is what if... Ransom had been sent to more than just those planets. What if he had been sent to other planets in our solar system or maybe other planets outside of our solar system? What would those stories be like? What kind of interactions would he have? And can we, what would, what would his, what would a Ransom trilogy book be like? A space trilogy book be like if it had been set on Jupiter or Mercury or uh, what kind of medieval values and medieval worldviews would C.S. Lewis have pulled out of those different locales? Yeah, it's a great question. I anything that I come up with is going to pale in comparison to what Lewis would have actually done. There is a book that is set on Mercury that was not written by Lewis, but was written by a friend of Lewis who became a friend of Lewis after Lewis wrote his book called The Worm Ouroboros. It's really? by E.R. Edison. It's written in this very old sort of 15th century style English, which Lewis also amused himself by writing to E.R. Edison in 15th century style English as well. So a lot of his letters are are, are really goofy to this E.R. Edison guy. E.R. Edison's not a Christian, but basically the main character or the, the narrator really in the Wormer Rubberus, he is looking up in the sky at Mercury, and suddenly he finds himself sort of like in astral form, basically watching these goings on on the planet Mercury. And it's just these warlike people going to war against each other, conjuring a dragon, which is the worm or rubber us. But uh, really, really weird. <laughs> I don't, I, you, you is there like listen. a is there like a moral out of that story? Have you have you read it or have you just heard I've, about it? I've read it up to a point and then yeah. I got I got tired of it as <laughs> as very often happens with me. So I did read, I probably read about half of it and then just couldn't stick it because it was makes you makes you appreciate how readable C.S. Lewis is. Yeah. I mean right? Lewis really liked it, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of these like same with David Lindsay's Voyage to Arcturus, that also has some weird space travel that's much more mystical. But yeah, I and and it's a it's a it's an allegory. A lot of it's very allegorical, right? It's it's a it's a science fiction book about interesting ideas, but David Lindsay is very gnostic in his outlook. So it's a, it's a like kind of like a gnostic space travel book about a planet near Arcturus and and very very weird yeah but but yeah i i mean i think mercury if lewis wrote about mercury it would have you know i guess people would have been i don't know like faster speaking uh, well, I was just better saying, now that know. we're now that we're talking about it this reminds me of that section in that hideous strength in the space trilogy where mm-hmm. the the oyarses of these other planets descend on the house and yep. each time one of them descends the inhabitants of the house, the characters sort of feel the qualities of that being. Yeah. So like Jupiter descends and Jupiter's joy and like fun and dancing and music breaks out. And, and then 
is it Saturn comes down? Saturn's the old age one. And mm-hmm. it's like they all feel old and not old, but they, they just feel like the passage of time has changed somehow. And so, yeah. yeah I, and Mercury's speed and flight and all that stuff. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. That, that I, I forget that that is in a way he does sort of visit those. He has those planets visit us on Earth yeah. and that is strength. But yeah, that is, that is, that would be fun. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, so if, if if you wrote a ransom trilogy book set on one of those planets, what would your thesis be? What would your point be? Oh man, not to put you on the spot. And Sophie, you're on the spot too. This is kind of on the spot. I'm going to defer to Sophie. <laughs> well, I feel like Jupiter would be a fun one to write. To sort of bask, sort of in in that sort of joy and I guess it would be similar to the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. You have some sort of coming of a king that I think would be cool but on the flip side I think writing one on Saturn could also be fun. It'd be really dark and depressing but I think that one you could really make the focus something to do about time and old age and I'm sure there's something profound one could hit upon in a voyage to Saturn. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, it's so also... I'm bringing up the the symphonic suite, which is one of my favorite pieces of music ever. The the Holst the planet suite. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to I'm bringing up the list so I can remind myself which ones they are. But yeah, Mars is the bringer of war. Venus, the bringer of peace. Mercury, the winged messenger. Jupiter, the bringer of jollity. Saturn, the bringer of old age. Uranus, the magician. Neptune, the mystic. So yeah, I'm. It would be fun, and maybe this is if someone's out there has a creative inkling in writing, uh, that would be a fun writing exercise to explore a, a, a ransom trilogy book set on an, another planet and explore the themes there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I. Yeah, if yeah. That being said, though, the Saturn, the bringer of old age, always fascinated me of mm-hmm. the 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 time, and even in that hideous strength when they talk about how these. When Mars lands, when Venus lands, and the, he has those experiences there, then they all sort of brace themselves for the gas giants, for Saturn and for Jupiter to sort of land. It's almost like the, those experiences with Mars and Venus are incredible, but these are the ancient ones. These are the mm. the, the 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 bigger bosses, sort of. So anyway, that yeah, that, you'd have a lot of fun with that. Yeah, what's Ju- Jupiter is like Glund, I think, and. I forget. The Saturn is, gosh, I forget too. Saturn is when something, we, something else. When we hit that, when we, if we go anything off of the Inklings Variety Hour schedule, when we hit that hideous strength in like six or seven years, we'll be able to refer back to it and see. That's right. That's right. It'll probably take six or seven years to do that hideous strength. That's <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's pretty long. Yeah. I think also the way that Lewis has set things up is that because Mars and Venus are the closest planets to Earth, they're the ones that are going to be affected by the evil that is contained in Earth, um, Mm -hmm. most likely, right? So, you know, next time we'll get to how exactly Earth's fate changed Mars and and then of course you know later on we'll have Paralandra in a year or so, 
and we'll get to you know how how it is that Paralandra is being challenged but it would be interesting just to see if you could make a book set on a sinless world that has it would just be pure exploration right with 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 less conflict right i mean you you have conflict on mars with the hanakra and the and the and the horas if you could could you make a whole book where there isn't evil there isn't this kind of existential threat and the, the you know and 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 people are i mean i think i think out of the silent planet comes pretty close to it right because he's mostly just like investigating this world and yes there are evil people who come from earth but it's oddly non-martial for being set on mars right? it's 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 fairly peaceful especially compared to you know paralandra later on but could that work on mercury or on i forget the i forget the old solar word for mercury it's like viltrib viltribi or something trubia or something yeah 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 he finds he finds great sounding words that that, Mm. that work pretty well for what they mean but uh, yeah yeah food for thought listeners we'd love to hear from you about this and you know what also, like how you would adapt the space trilogy to the things we know now about science and the fact that like most of the planets in the solar system probably do not have life. Does that destroy the whole thing? Or could you adapt these same ideas to the, the universe in general? So with that said, Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. Logan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Chris. Thank you both. And listeners, we'll see you next week for the conclusion of Out of the Silent Planet. All blessed encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the decent fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. I don't know if you know, but Logan's actual voice is like very thin and reedy and, you know, he, he sounds a little bit like a, like a small child, but he's, he's just <laughs> able to work such magic with his, with his producing skills that, you know, he... no, like, like I said, at the beginning of the episode, I'm seven feet tall and I'm a seven foot tall, snaky bodied otter creature with whiskers. So yeah, yep. just imagine yep. what that would sound like in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Stick around. Here, I'll keep going. There we go. We're sorry, no, no. I'm sorry, I was trying to do like an end tag there, but for the sake of not having to play the, the Mars theme, which is great. I love the Mars theme, but it's really bombastic and in your face all the time. Mm-hmm. Do y'all have any other suggestions for music that would go with Out of the Silent Planet? Gosh. Because Mars is great. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan right. of Mars. But it is very much Star Wars. It's very yeah. much Imperial March. And, you know, a little bit goes a long way. And yeah. I'm trying to find something yeah. that would tone. The tone would go well with just an easygoing conversation. Yeah. About a book. So, not, yeah. Again, not to put you on the spot. I'm sorry, I apologize for putting you on the spot. But if you think of anything, let me know. No, I think you're right. It, it You know, Mars Burger Award is not quite go with this book because this book is so like there's just something so i feel like something more ethereal right something like kind of somehow higher like speaking of like heights and and yeah yeah. oh that's good yeah well i've thought before as i have spent time thinking about this trying to plan for this episode like a lot of the other 
sweets in the planets would fit pretty well with the mm-hmm. book i think venus is sweeping and romantic and beautiful and a lot of the the other gas giants the mystic one and the magician like they're just feel like you're in a cathedral of music because they're just so large and sweeping and larger than life but then again i'm like what well, they're gonna find out they're gonna know i'm cheating because i'm not playing the right <laughs> planet song so- but then again March Mars is a march. Mars is a military yeah. march, and like yeah. you said, it's it's Imperial March. It's John Williams. It's right, it's right, right, right. In your face. And so yeah. I, I'm trying to think of something that would be smoother, but we'll see. We'll see yeah. what I come up with. David C. Downing will be listening to our podcast in his you know armchair or whatever. <laughs> He'll just like spit out his brandy across the room. Like, this is this is not Mars. This is this is not Mars. This is Neptune. slightly different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, oh well but uh, we we look forward to your letters 